Thank you for downloading today's podcast. I am your host, Paul Etterling. I am the lead pastor of the Westerville Free Will Baptist Church. We would appreciate it if you would like, subscribe, rate, and share this podcast to help make us more discoverable in the podcast universe. This is a special edition of the Sunday Sermon. During the months of January and February, we will be featuring messages from guest speakers. Today's guest speaker is Tim Throckmorton. He is the president of LifePoint Ministries, and he is also the Midwest Director for the Family Research Council. To learn more about these ministries, please visit lifepointusa.org. That's lifepoint with an E, lifepointusa.org or visit the Family Research Council at frc.org. Links to these websites will be in the show notes. In this message, Tim encourages us from the letter of 1 John concerning encountering the risen Lord. So let's join the message. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 John. 1 John is where we're going to be focusing today. And we began singing about the... uh, uh, the resurrection, talking about being raised from the dead. No grave's going to hold this body down. and Kind of been the theme this morning, and I think that was a, a theme that John greatly appreciated. It was a truth that John uh, believed in with all of his heart. Uh, he, was, uh, he was focused upward. Jesus rose from the dead, and John was looking up. By the way, the Scriptures do that over and over again. They call us to look up. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then, of course, Isaiah chapter 51, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke, the earth will grow like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. In Psalm 121, I'll lift my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. We are called to look up. Everybody ought to say amen to that. And we can say amen here, right? That's, all right, all right, we can do that. I want to make sure I'm good. I know I am, I know I am. Uh, Often, you know, when we grow a little older, we don't like to look back. I mean, I, my first sermon, I thought uh, this week about the first time I preached uh, from uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. That was my, my, my text. And man, I went on and on and on and preached for all of six minutes. Some of you are going to say, boy, I hope he's like he used to be, you know. Uh, and I'm not. <laughs> uh, but, but, but looking at this, looking at the book of John and looking ahead, the second of his five writings he gives us in the New Testament, uh, it's always been of interest to me how he began, what he focused on, what he was trying to accomplish. Uh, verse 1 of First uh, John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. Word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you 
that you also may have fellowship with him. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. It's interesting how he begins. I, I heard. I heard him speak. John saying, I heard him speak personally. Now, this is not too long after the resurrection. Just a few centuries or just a few decades had passed. The problem is that those who had heard him personally, they, they weren't all around at this point. But John was. He was there. John heard him, physically heard him. I love firsthand accounts. I don't know if you appreciate those, but I, de I really do. I, I love moments where somebody was actually there when it happened. Uh, I like uh, in the realm of politics where I uh, work a lot today, I, many people who I know now have known new President Ronald Reagan and they can tell me firsthand accounts of conversations they had. And I always tune in when I hear that because they say, this is what I heard him say. Maybe you've had an experience in your life where you're listening and you're, you're walking into a room and somebody's telling a story or retelling a story and it dawns on you that they're telling something you know about because you were there when it happened. And then they kind of veer from what actually happened that you remember and you kind of speak up and you say, wait, 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 I was there. And when you do that, it qualifies you, it credentials you because you personally heard it happen. That's what John was saying here. I heard him speak. I, I know exactly what he says. I know because I heard. And then he cuts through the clutter. I'm not interested in what everybody says or their opinion. I know the truth. I heard his voice. And then secondly, he says, I have seen. I've seen. It's interesting what happens next because one commentator says, you know, as John's talking here, he gets a little excited and he kind of says the same thing twice. I have seen and then I looked upon. But actually there are two different things that he says. First of all, he says, I have seen, which in the Greek is the word haran, which means physical sight. I saw with my eyes. I physically saw him. The second word, when he says, I have looked upon or gazed, is the word thessali, which means I beheld with understanding. Now get this. John said, I saw him with my eyes. And then at the same, in the same line, he says, I beheld with understanding. He's saying to us, not only did I see him, but I got who he was. We can look at something. We can hear something. We can read something. We may not understand it. John said, no, no, no. I saw him with my eyes and I understood who he was. That's deep. That's big. Because John didn't just, didn't just hear him, but he saw him and he understood who he was. Thousands come to church Sunday after Sunday and they hear about Jesus. They read about Jesus. They learn about Jesus, but they never get who he really is. They never understand that he is the son of God, that he is the word incarnate, that he was actually born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem, that he did live a sinless life, that he did die on a cross, that he did rise again. They, they understand the spirituality and the religion of it, but they don't get who Jesus is. I have seen and we have looked upon. I got who he was. We grasped. Spiritually and intellectually. And then he says, then, then he says, I touched him. Our hands of hell. Physically touched him. And you say, well, that's so what? What's the big deal? I remember in Luke's gospel where um, the disciples were there and 
Thomas wasn't. Jesus shows up and then they, he leaves and Thomas, this is the resurrected Christ. Thomas comes and he, he says, look, here, here's, here's this moment where he is alive, resurrected. Behold my hands and feet, Jesus said, that as I myself handle me, see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you have seen me have. In John 20, where Thomas saw him, he touched him. He literally he said, Thomas, put your hand here. Touch me. He's alive. I'm alive. The emphasis of 1 John is, is practical application, but there are also moral applications of the gospel here. See, John's an applier of the truth, and he implies morality in this letter for generations. It's a, a display of the life of the believer. Don't miss verse 4 here where he says, In all these things we write to you that your joy may be full. There's a reason for what I write. There's a reason that I tell you this. There's a reason that I emphasize this. You remember the Gospel of John, the first book we have that John wrote, uh, we know why he wrote it. In fact, he tells us at the end of the book exactly why he wrote it. It was written that we might believe. <laughs> you know, he said, there's a lot of things I could say. In fact, if I wrote it all down, and all uh, the, the world couldn't contain its volume. But this is written that you might believe. And then John in 1 John kind of declares why he wrote this, that your joy might be full. See, John understood that as, as time passed and the recollection of who Jesus was began to wane just a bit, he realized that that would take away from the experience believers would have. And it was important that he, that he clearly defined what was taking place and who he was and what he knew and what he believed. Fellowship with God includes joy and purity and discernment and confident faith. Let me suggest to you the... There are four reasons that John wrote 1 John. And let me, let me unpack those real quickly this morning as we have time together. Verse 4, and all these things were written, I write to you, that your joy might be full. That your joy might be full. Let me ask you this morning. As you begin the year 2020, is your joy full? <laughs> is the tank full? Or are you just getting by from day to day or week to week or month to month? Or are you full of joy? I want to have, I want to be like Aslan up there singing all the time. I want that kind of joy in my heart and life. I want to be full of his presence and near to him and be a student of his word and a disciple at his feet. I want to experience all that he has for me. I want to have joy. David or Donald Campbell writes that joy is a deep and abiding inner rejoicing which was promised to those who abide in Christ. And I love, I love how Augustine said there, there is a joy which is not given to the ungodly. We have something that the world doesn't have, amen? We've got something that's abiding. We've got something when we even are sick, we still have joy. When things don't go right, we still have joy. When things are all wrong, we can still be right in here because we have joy. That's a deep, settled peace. David said, thou, thou wilt make known to me the path of life, and in thy presence is the fullness of joy. Thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. I think it's kind of the picture in Psalm 23 where he anoints my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Which reminds me, it reminds us that true joy comes from the shepherd. 
It's not to be found in anything else. It's not to be found in an addiction. It's not to be found in a pleasure. It's not to be found in a hobby. It's not to be found in any other relationship, but in a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm not asking you this morning, how's things going? I'm asking you, how's your joy? How's your joy? This is why John wrote this letter. Is it full? It's, it's, it's more importantly why Jesus came. And then he said, secondly, to cause them, he wrote this to cause them to, to, to walk in victory. He wrote this so that they might have a victorious life. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you, he's defining this, so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm glad, I'm glad that sin's not in control in my life anymore. We don't have to have, we don't have to just, just, just succumb to its whims and its desires, but we can live a life where sin is not in control. If you're glad of that, say amen. We've got a heavenly father we can call out to. We've got an advocate. I remember reading years ago about a friend of the son of Abraham Lincoln. He was Robert's friend and uh, he was in the army and uh, he said uh, uh, to, to Robert, he wrote to Robert and uh, he said, if there's any way you can help me, he said, I'm fearful for my life. If you can help me, please uh, let me know. And so Robert sent word to his friend saying, write to me and I will intercede with my dad to get you a better position. A few years went by before Robert heard from the soldier again. When they got together, Lincoln's friend said, you know, I never took advantage of your offer. I never wrote back. I never asked for special favors in any way. He said, I want you to know what a comfort just knowing that I could call on you and you would go to your father was to me. I knew that regardless of how horrible the conditions, I knew that all I had to do was reach out to you and you could make the difference. And you know it's the same for us. We have an advocate. We've got an attorney. I get, attorneys get bad raps down here, but we've got a good one up there. Amen. We've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, John's clear. Don't sin. <laughs> don't do it. Just don't do it. Uh, if there, but, but if something happens, he said, there's a remedy. There's one we can go to. It's not a license, but it's a remedy. And God has a plan for all of us to live victoriously over sin. Thirdly, he, he wrote to them to make them aware of deception. Look at chapter 2 and verse 26. Chapter 2, verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. There are people trying to deceive you. And that's not just true then, it's true now. Just don't be deceived. Don't be informed by false teachers. And he writes to, to counteract heresy. Now, now, again, just to go back a minute, 95 AD or so is when he wrote this. This is as close as you can get to Jesus in John. He was there. He saw him. He was one of the oldest living survivors of that era. And he's observing some things that are very troubling to them. And he's worried about them hearing things about Jesus that aren't true. Let me tell you, that worries me today. There are a lot of things being said about Jesus in the world that aren't true. There are a lot of things being said about the church that aren't true. 
60 years have passed, and, and here is this moment where John is looking around. And by the way, they did not have Facebook, and they did not have written books. They had, they had, uh, they had the, the, the stories that were passed down. They had uh, this, that was Eastern culture, and so they had oral tradition that helped them move along the faith. They didn't carry a Bible. They didn't have technology. And so what they had learned had been passed down. You ever play that game? where you tell a story here and it gets whispered around the room and it comes back somehow altogether different. Oh, that's, that's fun to do. I did that once in a sermon illustration. In this sermon, I never did it again. So anyway, so, so the, the, what's noticeable here, and, and John's witnessing this generational uh, uh, influence where, where things have changed because it's been passed down. And then there are some, some that have been rising up and they were teaching things that were just not true. Now, here's a, I, 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 orthodoxy, it's a word we use, we hear, orthodoxy. Ortho means right, doxy means belief. So orthodoxy is right belief when you put them together. Uh, heterodoxy is, is uh, wrong, hetero wrong, doxy belief. So wrong belief. What John was seeing was wrong belief. It wasn't right belief that was being taught. The same way with practicing, practicing this. Ortho means right, practice, orthopractice is practicing right, and heteropraxis is practicing wrong. And he's witnessing the second and third and fourth generation of Christians, and he's seeing heterodoxy, he's seeing wrong belief. They're believing it wrong. And that's why at the very beginning he said, look, I, I heard this. I saw this. I got who he was. I even touched him. So he's declaring who he is because of what he's hearing. Uh, you say, well, what's that got to do with everything that's going on now? It's got a lot to do with what's happening now in our culture. Because some of the teachers then were, were watering down faith. He, John was dealing with the Gnostics that were, were just really in the, the uh, Essenes who were taking the truth of Scripture and they were, they were, they were parting it and, and they were dissecting it and they were, they were uh, changing its truth. Actually, um, there is this, um, the Gnostics especially use the medium of myth to portray their faith. And John was saying, no, he said, I heard him, I saw him, I got who he was, and I touched him. And, and again, you might be thinking, this doesn't matter. Now, let me push pause for just a moment and say, here we live in a culture today where George Barna says, only one in nine people in America who say they are Christians actually have a true biblical worldview. Now, let that sink in for just a minute. A real biblical worldview where you see everything through the prism of Scripture. Only one in nine, George Barna says, have a true biblical worldview. George Barna, one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my life, one of the pollsters who has taken the pulse of the church in America more than anybody else in the last 20 years, says that from age three until 13, a child is forming a worldview. Usually by 13, they've got one. And... and 80% to 90% of those who have a formed worldview at that age keep the same worldview until they die unless something interferes with that. Of course, the gospel can change that. There's power to do that. But for the most part, people do. And then add on top of that the number one influences in culture today. In 2017, he did a poll of 15,000 Americans. He asked him, what influences you the strongest? And then he broke it down into three different tiers. At the bottom of the third tier was the church. 
the top tier, the top five things in America that influence culture. Number one, movies. Believe it or not, movies. Number two, music. Number three, uh, the internet. Number four, television. And number five, uh, it escapes me, but it's along media, another media piece. The top five were media. And then there was government and then there was family. The top tier of influence in America. So a worldview, only one in nine of Christians in America actually have one. Children are forming worldviews each and every day and being influenced by what? By something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is it important what John is saying here? You talk about wrong belief. You talk about wrong practice being promoted at every level. It's happening all around us. And you say, well, you know, it's not, it's not that bad. Let me, let, me, uh, let me mention, if you've gone to college, maybe you've gone through the, the process of deconstruction where they begin to take uh, your faith apart. Uh, remember, John said, I, I, I heard him, I saw him, I understood who he was, and I touched him. It, by the way, why does it matter that he touched him? That means if he touched him, then, then he really had a physical body. Now, you, let's just follow that train of thought for a, just a second or two. If, if Jesus had a true physical body and he did rise from the dead, if that happened and John actually touched him, then Jesus, God's son, really did come to earth. And if he really came, then the account of his death is true. And if he actually died and, and was seen of many and rose again and was heard and touched, then the resurrection happened. And if someone came back from the grave, actually did that, then he has power over death. He must be God. And if he really is who he says he is, then his claims are true and he must be served. And I have to admit I'm wrong and I'm a sinner and repent and walk another way. If Jesus had a real body and he really did rise from the dead, as John said he did, and he actually touched him, then it matters. Amen. In the, in the 60s, there was a, a fellow by the name of um, Rudolf Boatman. Rudolf Boatman taught... Uh, and espouse the theory of the Jesus of history versus the Jesus of myth. And what he did was, he would, the same things the Gnostics did in John's day. And it was in essence this. They said, okay, uh, Jesus, there's, there's no way this really happened. That's what the Gnostics, it didn't actually happen the way that, that they're telling it over the years happened. And so we've got to make this palatable for generations to come. So this is what we're going to say. We're going to say he didn't actually rise. It's as if he rose from the dead. That's the line. If, as if he did. What about the feeding of the thousands? Well, it, it didn't actually happen. You see, that's how God can take care of thousands of people and all the needs of many people. And he can supply that. We'll reconstruct that. And, and over and over, the gospels and the, and the miracles were taken apart and they were made palatable for another generation of believers. And Boltman promoted that and Boltman used that. And that is still a, a, a approach that is used today to deconstruct faith as Christian boys and girls go off to universities. Now, here's the implications very quickly. I don't want to, you say, well, that's 2,000 years ago. What does it matter now? What does it matter if, if, it's, if it's not really true well, you see, if the truth of, this, of the resurrection is destroyed and there's no resurrection, then there were no miracles. And if there were no miracles, then there's no God. And if that, the word of God's not true, there are no standards that matter. There's nothing, uh, no, no such thing as sin, no savior that we need to repent to or ask forgiveness of. There's no Lord over all. And if that's true, then anything goes. 
And that's where we are. And you say, how can someone who calls themselves a Christian believe in this or that or the other? That's how. Because you take away the truth. You take away the actuality that Jesus really is who he said he was. That he really did die on a cross. He really did rise from the dead. And that's why John said to those who he was writing to that their joy might be full, that they're not deceived. I heard him. I saw him. I understood who he was and I even touched him. And because of that, it's all true. And that's the call of us today to tell the world it's all true. He really did rise from the dead. He really is alive. He's really available to help those who need help and, and supply the needs of those who need their, have their needs supplied. One more reason, and he wrote this to make sure they're confident in their relationship with Christ. Chapter 5, verse 13, he says again, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. This fleshed out for me a few weeks ago in a very real way right here in Columbus, Ohio. I am asked to speak at Worthington Kilbourne High School two or three times a year in their polyrad class. So yeah, juniors and seniors, and, and I always speak on a controversial issue. Um, last time I spoke there, it was on socialism and, and capitalism from a biblical perspective. Uh, the time before, I spoke on the transgender movement in education and legislation. And, and, I, and that particular time, I remember being there and I'm talking to, to these kids about the, the transgender movement and we're really going through unpacking what faith is, what a biblical worldview is, what culture is, what kind of cultures there are, what kind of culture we have. And then toward the end, a young man in the back raised his hand. He said, I got a question. He says, what would it take for you to change your mind? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what if your daughter came to you and said she was gay? I said, would it, would it change what you believe about the Bible? I said, no. Well, how would you treat her? Well, I'd love her. I wouldn't agree with her lifestyle, but I would always love her. She's my daughter. He said, well, what about this? And he gave me scenario after scenario. And after about three scenarios, and this was a, a moment, Pastor, that I will never forget. He kind of sat back in his seat. And, and he quit asking the questions because I said, no, I will not change what I believe about the Bible. I do not. Nothing can make me change what I believe about the Bible. And afterward, he came up to me and he says, I'm so, I was so frustrated because nothing could, could, could make you change what you believe. I've never, this is what I said, I've never, I've never heard of anything like that. Now, get what he was saying. This is a young man who has never known what absolute truth is about anything. The byproduct of all the things we've talked about has taken us to a place where there is a culture, there are generations of people in this world who have never known an abs to me. It's, not, yeah, sure. There are things that my dad taught me a long time ago. There are absolutes, you know. By the seat of my pants, I learned that in certain ways. But I, we, to us, it makes perfect sense. But to a generation of people outside these doors, they have never even considered something that is absolutely true. We know something that's true. 
Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Of course, he is. And John was saying, this is not something made up. This matters. You've got to get this. You've got to know this because your, your joy is at stake here. There are people trying to deceive you and tear you down and mess your mind up all over the place. You can absolutely know what you believe and why you believe it. And that's why I wrote this. That's why he said this. That's why he made sure that they, they knew. I, I, uh, in certain cities, there are certain places that hold uh, 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 great illustrations for me. In New York City, St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue, there's a, uh, uh, there's a uh, place in the back. Terry and I were there last year at Christmas time. And uh, in the very back, behind the altars, behind the pulpit area, uh, there is a little statue, it's about this tall, of Jesus. And he's standing there, it's the child Jesus, and he's holding the world in his hand. Now, right out the front door, if you turn around and you look right out the front door, across Fifth Avenue is one of Rockefeller's buildings, and in the front of that building is the statue of Atlas. And he's there, this big bronze, and he's kind of bent, and he's got the world up here on his shoulders. Within, almost within eye shot if it wasn't for the altars you could see right out the door and see it and I've always thought how the stark contrast is that's our choice that's what we get to choose we can try to carry the world and make sense of it on our own and figure it all out and be influenced by it and there is a weight there you can't carry it'll never make sense you'll never be satisfied but then there is this savior who wants to take not just the world, but your world, and hold it in his hand and make, make the difference that nothing else, no one else can make. And that's what John is talking about. That's the one that John heard. That's the one that John saw. That's the one that John got. That's the one that John touched. And do you know that we can hear him today? We can see him today. We can understand who he is today and we can touch him today. This is a new beginning of sorts of a year. What does God want to create in us? What does God want to do in us and through us in a new and exciting way? We've known him maybe for years. Maybe we've just gotten to know him. Maybe we need to renew our experience with him regardless. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's available here this morning for your need, whatever it may be. What do you need? Is it joyful? Is the level where it used to be or where it needs to be? Are you the father he wants you to be, the mother he wants you to be? Is, is your family the family he wants it to be and how he wants to use you and your talents and your treasure and your time? If not, you can come and allow him to have his way. Hear me. This is a timeless truth. The world at its worst needs the church at its best. And we're needed now. Stand with me as the musicians come. or uh, I know they're, he's getting ready to get a song for us. Uh, Pastor and I didn't talk about the closing. But I'm going to say this before I turn it over to him. If you're here today and you haven't seen him and you don't see him clearly now, why don't you come? If you're here today and... and, and <laughs> You're not hearing him. Why don't you come? 
you're here today and you need to touch him or you need his touch in your life, why don't you come? As we sing this morning, don't wait, don't put it off, don't make an excuse. Time's wasting. We don't have much left. All of us, not just as a nation, as a world, but we don't know when our time is up. It matters what we do and it matters what we do now. So please, respond this morning as as our dear brother sings for us and leads us in song. Thank you once again for downloading this edition of the podcast. If you would be so kind to take a moment to like, share, rate, comment, and subscribe to this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. This will help us become more discoverable in the podcast universe. Until next week, have a great week.